Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in a rather empty and quarantined capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Michael Rainwright, Managing Director of Boodles, one of the United Kingdom's premier jewelry firms and a two-centuries-old family business. Michael, hello. Good morning, Matthew. Thank you for joining us. Uh, The question has to be asked uh, right off the top here. How are you coping with COVID-19 as a business? Um, Well, it's all come as a huge and very rapid shock to us, as it has to everybody. And if you'd asked me sort of four weeks ago how I was going to cope with nine shops not selling a single thing, I would have thought it was the end of the world. However, when you really, I mean, what it's about is putting the business into the, into the deep freeze, I would say, for the, for the time being, and cost control. Obviously, we've got the medium term to worry about because we're in the jewellery business and who knows whether people are going to want to buy jewellery in three, six, nine months' time. Right. A bit of me thinks they're going to cut back and all that, and another bit of me thinks they're going to say, to heck with it, I want to buy something for my loved one. Um, But the main thing, obviously, we're doing now is controlling costs. And I would say we've been helped hugely by the Chancellor so far. Now, of course, it's a a changing environment for all businesses uh, around the country and around the world. Uh, Do you feel that this is an economic leveler between uh, nations at the moment? Um, Well, it could be. It depends how long it goes on for, I think. if it goes on for a very long time, it could be a huge economic level because the wealthy are going to lose their wealth. Uh, stock markets are going to crash far more than they have already. And a lot of companies, you know, a lot of um, wealth that's been built up in, in terms of companies and individually is going to disappear. So everyone's going to be far more even. However, if the, if the virus lasts, let's say, for three months, my view is we could get back back to normality quite quickly, but we'll have to see. Indeed. Um, well, let's transition on to the subject of leadership. Uh, I always like to start this conversation off by asking a very simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? I think if I had to sum it up in two words, uh, two or three words, a great role model, I would say. Right. I think, I think as leaders, as business leaders, and by the way, I haven't really earned my position as a business leader. I'm in a family business. I'm the fifth generation in a sixth generation family business. So I've I've been rather fortunate. But I'd say being a great role model because the staff are looking at you Mm. all the time. Well, there must be some unique challenges about leadership within a family business. Yes, we're slightly different because we're like an extended family. We've got 110 staff. And I think if you asked our staff, they'd think they were all part of the Boodles family. Mm. So they're not just mere employees. And the majority of our staff who, who uh, join us tend to stay for, for a very, very long time. So we get to know them very well. We get to know their families. Um, so it's like a, like a big family, really. How do you encourage that longevity in your staff? Well, I think you've got to look after staff um, well or they, or they will vote with their feet. And that means obviously uh, rewarding them well financially, but I think that's only a part of it. It's acknowledging them, it's listening to them, it's recognizing them, 
um, it's giving them scope in a way in our business to run their own business within our business mm-hmm. because we're dealing with a pretty high level customers. Um, it's a bit more like a, a wealth management business. The relationships our staff uh, create with their customers is unique. Mm-hmm. And we give them a lot of um, leverage to do that. We give them a lot of expense allowance to take their customers out for dinners, even take them away on trips, take them take them to on extraordinary trips to New York to, to visit diamond cutters, all that sort of thing. So our, I think our sales staff, our experienced, experienced ones, enjoy being entrepreneurs within our company. Mm-hmm. And I think the junior ones obviously don't have those relationships for two, three, four, five years. And they may get a bit frustrated to begin with, but they see what their senior peers are doing and they aspire to that. So it's giving them something to look up to, really. Giving them something to look up to and empowering them. Of course, there's a whole load of other things that go into it as well. It's being compassionate and kind when they may have their problems. I think we really genuinely do care. Um, and um, re- just look at looking out for them and looking after them, having fun with them, um, having a laugh with them. I think that's so important. Yeah. I wanted to pick up uh, on what you said earlier about uh, jewelry being a financial investment. Uh, a lot of people seem to not realize that it is basically like buying a bond. Uh, it is something that's going to appreciate in value in, in, in good circumstances. Uh, is this is this a good way of investing for uh, for people? <laughs> that's a good question. Well, we never actually sell it as an investment, to be honest with you. Mm. Although historically, we sell it as a thing of beauty to enjoy. Uh, and to and to spoil yourself or, or a loved one with. But, I mean, history has shown that over any really 15, 20, 20-year 20 period, um, good quality jewellery, and I do stress good quality jewellery, mm-hmm. has appreciated in value. We do valuations now for jewellery we sold 20 years ago, and it absolutely staggers me how much diamonds have gone up in value in that, in that period. Mm. But... For the last five, four or five years, they haven't gone up very much. They went up rapidly from 2001 or two to 2012, um, apart from the financial meltdown when they had a bit of a dip in 08. Um, the last few years, it's been a bit flatter. But that's like equities, isn't it? You can't predict when they're going to go up and when they're not. Right now, the really hot ticket is pink diamonds, which are mined mainly from one mine in the world, in, in Australia, in Australia, called the, called the Premier Mine, which is closing next year. So before the current virus situation, the the, the curve for pink diamonds was really steep. You know, there's very, very few of them. There's going to be far fewer coming out of the ground in a year's time. And there's, there were a lot of people who wanted them. Let's hope that remains the case after we recover from the virus. Now, when you see trends in these various gemstones, uh, is this something that is an industry-wide kind of trade body uh, situation, or is this just trends that you see within your own business? I think a bit of both. To be honest with you, the jewelry business is not subjected to fashion in the same way as the clothes fashion business is. Um, I mean, fortunately for us, our jewellery doesn't go out of fashion too quickly, which is just as well, because we've got quite a lot of rather old stock, which we, we wish we didn't have. I mean, if you were in the clothes business and you've got dresses that were four, five, six, seven years old, uh, no one would want to buy them. But the good thing about jewellery is um, it doesn't go in and out of fashion very quickly, and you can remodel it. 
Mm. So we might have something that we've had sitting around that no one's taken a shine to. And we can take the stones out of it and use our design team to reinvent it. With regards to specific stones, I would say um, we, I mean, we're very diamond-centric, very, very diamond-centric. We wish we could do better with uh, other precious colored stones, which is ruby, emerald, and sapphire. But the trend seems to be um, more for diamonds. At least that's what we're finding. Or then we ask ourselves, is, is that a... Um, you know, our own prophecy. We're not pushing uh, fancy, fa- fancy colored stones uh, enough. Mm. So um, a bit of both, I'd say. What sort of leaders inspire you? What sort of leaders inspire me? Well, I have to say, I've been extremely inspired by Boris Johnson in the last 24 mm. hours. Uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but being a vehement Remainer, um, that hasn't all, always been the case. I mean, I, I really didn't want to listen to him up until a couple of weeks ago, but I think he's doing an incredibly good job. And I really admire the way he gets nasty questions from the press uh, and doesn't get flustered or stressed, Absolutely. Which, is a, which I think is a great sign of a good leader. And I'm, I'm sort of you turning on Boris Johnson. I'm very glad I am. So um, he certainly inspired me at the moment. I think Rishi Sunak obviously had a, a, um, a good message to deliver last week when he announced the um, staff retention scheme, which mm. is extre- extremely helpful to us, and also the business rates holiday. Um, I mean, he had a lovely message to deliver in a difficult, at a difficult time, but he delivered it with real leadership. And, um, uh, and I was most impressed with that. I was also impressed with Boris Johnson for letting him do it, actually, because Boris could have stolen, stolen that sort of mm. really nice job to do. It seems as though we are getting back to uh, government by cabinet and cabinet consensus as opposed to the, uh, the SOFA um, years under uh, Blair and Cameron. Sorry, can you just say that question again? It, Sorry, it, I didn't quite see, get it. it seems as though we are uh, getting back to uh, governing by cabinet consensus uh, as opposed to the sort of SOFA governments of uh, Cameron and uh, Blair, where a lot of decisions were taken by the uh, Prime Minister and their uh, advisors without consulting Cabinet, uh, which it, it can only be a good thing. Well, I agree with that entirely. I'm not sure if it was going to be the case before the virus broke out, however, because Dominic Cummings was getting far too powerful for my liking. But certainly at the moment, we're, we're seeing some extremely impressive Cabinet uh, cabinet members. I mean, Hancock, I think, is coming across extremely well. Mm. Um Obviously, Sunak, I've commented on that. And, and Gove, actually, I think is coming across well. So, um, yes, it's good to see them all performing in their different fields. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, just like government, businesses are made up uh, of people performing in their different fields. Uh, but sometimes those fields do end up in conflict with each other. How do you resolve conflict within the workplace? Well, you always get conflict in the workplace. Um, it's one of the jobs of the leaders to sort that out because the buck stops with you, doesn't it? Mm. Um, I mean, in a way, it sounds, a, sounds an odd thing to say, but I quite enjoy doing it. Um, you just have to, you just have to make sure that sense is seen. I mean, a typical example in our business is when two salesmen both think they've made the same sale and they both <laughs> want crediting, crediting with the sale. Well, you know, they might have walked into one shop. We've got five shops in London, actually. They might have walked into one shop in the morning and the salesman thought they'd sold the piece, 
Then they'll go into another shop in the afternoon and a different salesman will sell it. So who gets the credit for it? Well, we try and get them to sort out the conflicts. We try and get our managers to sort out the conflicts um, because we think that's the best thing to do. But at the end of the day, that's not always possible. So you have to step in. And I think very often it's a 50-50. Many conflicts, I think, are six and two threes. So, uh, you know, in in the absence of any other um, answer, I, I tend to split it down the middle. Now, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. But uh, just before you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Boodles? Well, I, no one knows the answer to the, what the next 12 months hold in store. I'm a, reason, I'm a reasonable optimist. and I'm, keen, I'm happy to see the numbers in Italy getting a little bit better in the last few days. I think it's going to make us review our business dramatically, um, look at costs dramatically. Um, I'm not sure how easy it is going to be to sell jewellery. So the next year is going to be very much one of cost control and looking at every single penny um, and working very hard to crank the business up when things do come around. But I do think with hard work, diligence, the right staff, and my goodness, I'm very lucky that we've got the right staff. And I hasten to say I've got a brother and two nephews in the business who I run the business with, and we all get on very well as a board. And I do think we've got the building blocks in place to withstand nearly anything that's thrown at us. But only time will tell. Well, Michael, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show today. And uh, I'd like to wish you and everyone at Boodles uh, the best of health and the best of luck in the coming weeks and months. Uh, And when this is all over, I'd love to have you back on the program in more calmer times. Thanks, Matthew. Enjoyed it. That was Michael Rainwright, Managing Director of Boodles. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex, uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at football. And uh, the, the quite always 
mention when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played mm-hmm. under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years. I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood, and of course a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that caliber can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. What a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence. Um, me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to, to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time at, 
maybe overly strict for the time, you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you. And you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment? I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was, I was playing. And I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into him because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, Jeff, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, well, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top 
quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. There's too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, The other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you. you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I had a somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, and um, we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. But then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make me laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see this happened when you must have realized that people teammates began looking at you for leadership um is that something that occurred to you or did you just realize that by by quick one way or the other people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration well possibly that's never really 
struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke, and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um. Well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude. is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but... There's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just... Luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely. Mm. You've got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they've they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they. Uh, Ron Green was yeah. The answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back. Uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it 
that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody... And going back to an earlier, earlier question for me, that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially. And that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers. We, we still got on, our wives got on all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. They, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the... Um, uh, Getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time, and I wouldn't. And when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding, and I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was, and I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. You- we had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly. Uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership, all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation, and I think that's you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over it, go over the past, and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, 
goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.